Thank you, Jeff. Uh, good morning, Trinity. Welcome back. For you all coming back. This is great. Uh, when I was 18 years old, uh, I was accepted to the Air Force Academy, and I was pretty nervous about crossing over into this new path of life. I, you know, I don't come from a family that has like a long line of his, uh, like military service, so it was like a huge unknown. Uh, I knew enough to know that it was incredibly rigorous uh, and that it would take a lot of sacrifice on my part. So like most sons, I went to my dad to, to get some advice. Dad, what do you think? Right. So now I expected my dad to say, yes, you should do it, or no, you shouldn't, or something like that. But I didn't get either response. Instead, my dad told me a story. He says, son, did you know that when your grandfather and grandmother crossed over into the United States when they immigrated in 1946, that my parents didn't barely have anything at all. They had very few belongings, a few young children, but nothing of note. Son, did you know that my father, your grandfather, literally built the house that they lived in? He says, can you imagine the rigor and sacrifices they had to make? And then that's it. That's all my dad said to me, to my question. He didn't say much more than that. Well, what is it my dad is uh, doing in that moment? Why is he answering the question like that? He is using a story of the past of people I know to encourage and motivate my future choices, right? And we do this thing, we do that all the time, right? We use stories of the past to encourage us to act in certain ways, or sometimes we use stories to keep us from doing other things, Well, welcome to Deuteronomy. We have been in a sermon series called The Forgotten Torah, which means that we've been studying the book of Moses, specifically Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these are the ones that don't get a lot of attention in our evangelical churches, but that's really too bad because these ancient books are so relevant for modern people. There's a timeless sophistication when we inspect them carefully. So today we begin our study of the very last book of the Torah, or as Christians call it, the Pentateuch, uh, in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a series of farewell sermons that Moses delivers to the people of Israel just before they cross the Jordan and enter the Promised Land. Now it's important to note that Moses does not get to go in. At this point, Moses gathers all the people of Israel together, and he tells them a story. See, 40 years earlier, they were delivered from Egypt. They were finally going back to their homeland. But while they were enslaved in Egypt, other people moved into their homeland, and these occupiers were rough and tough. But God promised that he would be with them, right? But what should have been an 11-day trip turned into 40 years in the desert. Because of their absolute disobedience and grumbling, God did not allow that original audience, or that, excuse me, that original generation to enter to, into the land. So not even Moses. So right before Moses is about to die, he gathers their children, that is the, this next generation, and he tells them a story about their parents. And why does Moses tell them a story as his farewell sermon? Why did my dad do it? To motivate them 
to shape them, to encourage them to cross over into the promised land with courage. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. Unlike their parents, or even Moses himself, he wants to help them to cross over from death to life. Now listen closely. This event of crossing the Jordan from the desert into the land, this is an event that your New Testament authors use to describe every person's life, right? That is to say, this story has everything to do with your life. From moving from desert to joy, from slavery to freedom, from death to life. So how does Moses do it with this story? Well, this morning we're going to evaluate the features of Moses' first farewell address. And by studying it, we're going to understand our hearts, we're going to understand our spirituality, and we're going to understand our God. All right, with that brief introduction, would you stand with me? Let's give our attention to a few major excerpts in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And all right, this is the very best part of the whole sermon. It's a little bit long, so follow along with me in your Bibles or in your bulletin. Deuteronomy chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Verse 26. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God goes before you. He will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And the Lord, verse 34, heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephune, he will see it, and to him and to his children, and I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Verse 41. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord commanded us. And every one of, every one you fastened every one of you fastened on his weapons of war, and thought it was easy to go up to the hill country, And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. 
and you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. You may be seated. If, um, if you've ever read books on adoption or adopting children like we have, or really for that matter, if you've ever read books on parenting, uh, you will find that there's this kind of major theme that runs out, and it's this theme of attachment. So it's important for children to uh, develop a meaningful attachment to their parent because, as the child development specialist tells us, it builds trust. Learning to trust is, critically, is a critically important developmental step, right? As a child develops into an adult, if he or she never learns to trust, he or she will become extremely self-absorbed, self-obsessed, and will be afraid of committing to everything and anything. And let me say, the biblical anthropology is really pessimistic. The Bible says that all of us are born with this allergy to trusting. We struggle to attach to anything. We're always protecting our interests, okay? So for instance, when my little girls uh, were young, they're all born in the same year, we put all three of them in high chairs next to one another to feed them. So these babies were fully dependent on us. Three times a day, we prepared food. Three times a day, we fed them and we cleaned them up. We did this three times a day, seven days a week, 12 months of the year. Our kids never missed a meal. In other words, my children are inundated with evidence that we love them, that we care for them, that we're going to take care of them, right? And yet, when I want... One little bite of ice cream from them, of theirs, what would they say? No, mine. My ice cream, right? Despite all the evidence that they can trust me to provide for them, it was difficult for them to overcome their lack of trust. Even though I blessed them with yummy food 756 times in running, against all the evidence, it was still hard for them to believe that I would be faithful once again, can I suggest to you that what is present in the heart of my children and us is what's going on here in our text? So notice how Moses, right, he retells the story. So in verses 19 through 21, he commissions them to enter into the land, okay? But what is their response? What's their response? Look there at verse 27. It says, and you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Isn't that just a really interesting thing to say? The Lord hated us. Here's what we learn about the human heart. Their main problem and our main problem is not that we struggle to believe in God. Rather, we struggle to believe that he is good. We struggle to believe that we can count on him. Contrary to all the evidence. In verse 31, he says that the Lord has this proven track record. He took care of them in Egypt. He took care of them in the wilderness. And it says, where you have seen how the Lord, your God, carried you. Verse 31, as a man carries his son. Contrary to all of the evidence, they still said, God hated us. 
What we learn about our heart is that it is plagued with unbelief. Not belief, not unbelief that God exists. Unbelief that God will take care of us. Listen, our primary problem is not that we break God's rules. Our primary problem is that we don't trust him. And therefore, we break his rules taking matters into our own hands. We do life our way because we only trust ourselves. And let me get let's like really, really practical. Because there are two areas which Christians really stand out in our, in our culture. And it's the way that we think about our money and the way that we think about our sexual ethics. In our culture, Christians are considered totally weird, totally counter-culture with respect to those two issues. If you break file on these issues, you're going to feel cultural heat, right? If you really live a Christian life, you're going to feel cultural heat. Populism, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, like a, a pluralistic society is dead. You're going to feel heat. Tim Keller says this. He says, the pagans were generous with their bodies and stingy with their money. But Christians were to be generous with their money and stingy with their bodies. In other words, that was God's blueprint, his design for his people. But here's why we find ourselves in a very similar position as Israel. We struggle to obediently leave the desert and cross over into life. We hear God's ethic and we struggle to believe that he knows what he is doing. God says, don't you believe me when I say to you that you must not spend all of your money on yourself? That if you do, it'll ruin your heart, that it'll ruin your children's heart. Do you believe me when I say to you that, that being generous with the poor and investing in the proclamation of the gospel is how I want you to invest my resources? What, what wells up in your heart when you hear God say that to you? Do you hear, God hates me? Or, God loves me. He knows what's best for me. Or, or do that with the same exercise, do the same exercise with, with sexual ethics, right? God has a very specific and limited vision on how we are allowed to express our sexuality. And so for some people, this means that you might be single your whole life, right? For, for some of you, it means that you cannot be in a relationship with someone who does not share your faith. Or for some of you, it means that you have to remain celibate your whole life, which is really difficult because you're walking this earth with same-sex attraction. Or if you're married, it means that sexual intimacy is not about you or for you principally. It's about serving one another and not reducing them to an object to be consumed. See, God knows this isn't, this isn't easy. He would it wasn't easy for them to cross over into the promised land either. God is not being trivial or light with your heart. When you hear God's exhortation to cross over into life, what wells up in your heart? God hates me. Or God loves me. He's for me. He, he made me. I can trust that God knows what's best for me. Can you trust him? Do you trust that he's good? Or do you say, God, who are you to tell me how to live my life? 
You're fired. I know this is extremely difficult for us. When Israel looked into the promised land, they thought, if we cross over, we're going to get killed by giants and by people with walled cities. These are obstacles. Really difficult obstacles reside in our hearts as well. Many of our dreams don't include God's instructions. Yes, yes, this is hard. But where Israel began to rebel was when they saw these obstacles, these really hard things, they thought that it meant that they have other options. They didn't. And we don't either. We must obey his perfect and good will. So Moses tells the story of their parents so that you and I can understand our hearts. The story reveals hearts, you see. Our, big, our heart's biggest problem is unbelief. Not in God's existence, right? Rather in his goodness. Even though there's all the evidence to the contrary, we still struggle. Listen, you can trust him. You can trust him. All right, but let's continue of our, uh, in our examination of this farewell speech by Moses. So, so far we see, we've seen how this story helps us to understand our own hearts, but it also helps us to understand our own spirituality, our spirituality. So in the New Testament, uh, Jesus tells this parable, famous one, you know it. We usually call it the parable of the prodigal son. So in this parable, there is a good father with two sons. The younger son didn't love the father. He loved the father's money. So he didn't obey him. He took his inheritance and he lived the life that he thought he wanted. Now the older son, he didn't love the father either, right? He loved the father's money as well. But instead of living a rebellious life, he lived a really religious life in order to get his father's inheritance. But what's important to note here, which is what Jesus critiques in the parable, is that both sons had a plan for getting their own way, either being really bad or by being really good. But both have selfish underpinnings, right? So this parable typifies our spiritual disposition towards God. And and we see both even in the life of Israel. Now think about this. After God miraculously saved Israel uh, from Pharaoh in Egypt— It was two weeks on the Sinai Peninsula when they already began to grumble and complain. And what was it they said? They said, I don't care what God says. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to do life my way, right? Israel Israel foolishly wanted to be independent from God. But then something happens. That technique didn't work out for them. So they tried something different, a new technique. Look there at verse 41. It says, that they said, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war. And they thought it was easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight. For I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord. And presumptuously went up into the country. Okay, so what in the world happens there? It looked like they were sorry, right? It it appeared that they decided to obey God. Is that what happened? It's actually the exact opposite. That wasn't the case at all. They were simply trying to manipulate God with the appearance of good behavior. And God would have none of that. 
See, they were sorry about all the consequences, but they weren't sorry about breaking trust with God. Listen, repentance without real heart change is just manipulation. They were still trying to get God to do what they wanted. You know, listen, you can be rebellious and try to get what you want, or you can be really good to try to get what you want, as if God could be bought. But both responses have the same fundamental roots, you see. This is a really dangerous strand of spirituality. So on one hand, a person is rebellious, has no regard for God's law, and all the religious people look at them with judgment. Why? Because they just want what they want. They don't care about God. And on the other hand, a person is, is good. They read the Bible. They, they give a little bit of money. They fast forward during certain scenes of Game of Thrones because they're respectable people, right? Uh, they go to church when nothing else is going on, and they think, I'm a good person. God owes me, right? Listen, that person wants what they want too, you see. The Lord is not the religious person's deepest love. And so the law is just their way of getting God to do their will. That kind of religious spirituality says, God, look at me, reward me. But that is not biblical spirituality. Biblical spirituality says, look at God. Look at his good deeds. I will follow him, even if it contradicts me. If you don't understand this point, Trinity, you'll never cross over into life. You'll die in the desert. Every time you hear God's law, it will feel like someone's tying weights to your feet and throwing you into the ocean. Until you can see that obeying the law, until you can see obeying the law as a response to love, is a response to love, not a precondition for it, then you'll never see its beauty. You'll never see God's law as something fundamentally good for you. Instead, God's will and instructions will be negotiable to you. You will do them only if you get something in exchange. Don't be seduced by that false strand of spirituality. It was toxic for Israel. It is toxic for us. Moses always starts with grace. God rescues you from slavery. God goes with you and, and before you into the wilderness. He is, he is for you while, while you are still a hopeless slave. Now, because you are rescued and loved, because of that, obey his instructions. He's for you, you see. And that leads us to our final point, which we'll, I'll, I'll use as my conclusion. So in Moses' farewell speech in Deuteronomy, he retells Israel's story to help shape this new generation who's about to cross over into the promised land. He doesn't want them to make the same mistakes that their parents did. So as he tells their story, this, the parents' story, he, he helps them to understand their own hearts. That is the nature of unbelief. And he, and he helps them to understand their spirituality, the nature of good and toxic spirituality. So now we get to Moses' final and most important agenda. He tells a story to help them and to help us understand our God more profoundly. So to this point, 
Israel's just been a total train wreck, right? That's the book of Numbers in a nutshell. Their time in the wilderness, as we've learned, has been awful. And the reader is left with the question, why is God still allowing them to enter into the promised land? And the key to that is actually in verse 35. So God, as he's rebuking them, God says that he swore to their fathers that he would give them the land. So what, what, what's swearing? What is he talking about? Well, back in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham saying that he would bless them, that he would, he would give, him, give him land and descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? So back then, when you make a covenant, you cut it. You cut a covenant. Not, that's a really weird way of saying it, but you cut a treaty. And what does that mean? Well, there are these things called, um, everyone put on your thinking caps for just a second, suzerain treaties, right? And this is what this is. This is where a king would enter into a relationship with a vassal or an inferior party. So they're not equals, okay? So one makes a promise of protection, and the other makes a promise of service and loyalty. And then they cut the treaty. And what they do is they take several animals, and they cut these animals in half. It was really, really bloody, And then the inferior party, the vassal, walks between the bloody halves of these animals. So symbolically, it communicated that if you do not live up to your end of the treaty, then may what happened to these animals happen to you. Okay? So usually, uh, kings didn't walk through. It was just the vassal, just the inferior party. So if the vassal did not do his part, he was punished. But if the king did not do his part, the vassal still suffered. The vassal had to bear the penalty either way. But in Genesis 15, when God and Abraham cut this covenant between them, something very strange happens. God made Abraham to fall asleep, and God alone, in the form of the fiery torch, similar to how he was manifested in the desert, he's the one who alone passes through the bloody animals. Now, this was absolutely shocking to a Jewish reader, right? To Jewish listeners. Here, we have a king making a unilateral covenant with his people so that if either party breaks covenant, God alone will pay the price. God is the only one who signed the contract. God will guarantee the contract even if Israel totally messes things up. And so in this context, God says, my people, cross over, cross over from death to life. Go go into the land bravely. And they say, no, no, we're scared. If we go in there, we're going to get torn to pieces. And God responds, don't you see? Don't you see? There's nothing they can do to hurt you in any eternal sense. The only one. The only thing, the only one that's going to get killed and torn to pieces is me, right? There's nothing that they can do to hurt you. Listen, church. Eventually, Israel crossed over into the promised land, and they broke covenant. And you, too, have broken covenant. And so why doesn't God just give up on us? It's because God was torn to pieces. 
It's because he hung on a cross. Jesus crossed from life to death so that you could cross over from death to life. This has got to be your most fundamental core belief. Listen to these words of Jesus in John chapter 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you let this precious farewell speech in Deuteronomy sink into your bones, if you truly believed it, it would change your life. You would understand the unbelief in your heart. You would see the difference between healthy and toxic spirituality. And you would see the Lord in a way that motivates you to make any sacrifice for him. Nothing would be off limits. You would say, Lord, have your way with me. Who could hurt me? Who could tear me to pieces? And that is your Lord. That is your Lord. And that's why we will never give up coming back. And if the entire church, if Trinity completely, could all really believe this, like if we could all believe this together, just think about the amazing way we could bless San Juan and Dorado. I mean, just think about it, the possibilities. People who think like that, broken, messy people, but man, a force for good. Are you in? I'm in. Amen.